0: Hello, and welcome to History Soundbites, a podcast in which historians present their current research and leave us all feeling smarter and more informed for their efforts. In today's podcast, myself and Rob Denning will be interviewing Gillian Glace about her upcoming book, African Political Activism in Postcolonial France, State Surveillance and Social Welfare. Gillian, welcome.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Definitely. So we have the title of the book. Uh, Could you start off by giving us an overview? of um of the topic itself
1: oh sure so the book really deals with i guess i'll kind of unpack the title so what i look at is how does it african immigrants in france after 1960 uh, when france's west african colonies decolonized how they actually stage political protest and the different forms of that protest take, and um, how that then shapes the state's response and then i also have an argument in there about how their protest tactics are shaped by colonial protest tactics and the kinds of political activities that were pursued in the interwar period both in West Africa and in France. And then I'm looking at state surveillance to really understand how the state tries to understand these political actors, these immigrants, and this community overall and then how that surveillance in turn shapes social welfare policies, and I have two different examples of that in the book. I have one that's a medical um, social center, the Centre Médico-Socio-Bosué, which actually offered healthcare services exclusively to African immigrants starting in the early 60s, 1960s. And then I look at this program of relocation that the state undertook in Paris and the surrounding suburban communities in terms of relocating African immigrants from one place to the next and sort of unpacking why it is that they did that and what their intended outcomes were and what the impact overall on, on the community was. So it's basically a book that's divided really into two parts. It looks first at the political activism undertaken by African immigrants and then how the state responds. And so that surveillance piece is kind of a bridge between the two sections of the book overall.
2: When you're talking about um, African protesters. Who, who are we talking about? I mean, are we talking about from all across Africa? Or is it specifically from France's old colonies in Africa? Which which groups of the people in Africa were you were you focusing on?
1: So I'm focusing on the second group that you named there. I'm looking at people who are coming from France's West African colonies. And after 1860, the nation states of Senegal, Mali, and Mauritania, primarily. There are others who come from Côte d'Ivoire and from other places as well, but the main ones that I'm looking at are from those three places, and those were three of the key colonies in France's West African empire. And so what's interesting is that the group that I study from 1960 on, there's a longstanding presence in France of their ancestors dating back to the 19th and even early 20th century. So it's actually part of a longer story of migration from West Africa to France into cities like Marseille and Paris that dates back to the war itself in terms of the First World War, in terms of the interwar period, 1920s, 1930s, and then even um, coming in the 19th century as well. So what's interesting is that uh, when I started to look at the scholarship, there was scholarship on migration after 1960 from France's West African colonies, but it didn't focus specifically on the population that I was looking at in the way that I was looking at them in terms of their political undertakings. And it's interesting too, because I deal primarily with workers. So these are men primarily who are coming to France in search of employment opportunities, which is what had drawn their predecessors as well. So that's kind of a continuation of a labor migration from West Africa. And they were predominantly male. So I'm looking at mostly a male migration pattern. Uh, Very few women came until the mid-1970s when France's Uh, immigration laws changed pretty significantly. So uh, that's part of the story as well. I I tell the story from the standpoint of gender to some extent, but it's actually men. And usually when we talk about gender, we're looking at men and women and, you know, in terms of women's history, women. Um, But this is gender from a different perspective. So that's been kind of an interesting issue to explore as well.
2: And then just to kind of continue to set up the story here, when they're coming into France, are they coming in as French citizens because of the old colonial relationship? Or are they coming in as what today we in the U.S. we would call illegal immigrants? Or are they right. legal immigrants? What is their actual yeah. legal status as they're coming into France?
1: It's pretty tenuous. So Frederick Cooper is one of the most renowned scholars of African history working in the U.S. or anywhere in the world today. And he wrote a really important book on citizenship and the colonies and decolonization. But what he doesn't really talk about and what i've tried to piece together somewhat successfully and somewhat unsuccessfully is the status of these workers and so some of them actually do retain french citizenship through a series of agreements made between france and its former colonies some of them come in with uh the citizenship of their new nation states so some come in as senegalese Malian, as martinian citizens rather than french citizens Some come in with both, interestingly enough. And then what's also fascinating is that there are a whole host of agreements that occur between France and its former colonies, kind of shaping labor migration overall. Because under the colonial system, I mean, there was kind of a system of free circulation, you know, of colonial subjects and of colonial citizens who would come to France. But that really starts to change as decolonization comes. So there are a whole host of criteria that, the workers themselves have to meet. They have to get a work certificate. They have to find housing. They have to go through a medical screening. And that's how they get to that sort of legal status as as legal workers uh, within France. But many of them, because the requirements are so new, don't do it because there is really no tradition of having to do it. So uh, there is a, a population that comes in as undocumented workers, and the state does become increasingly concerned about that, and one of my theories about why is that these are no longer considered French subjects in terms of colonial subjects, and they're no longer French colonial citizens except when they are, and so the state is worried about this population of workers who are now circulating in France who are actually foreign nationals, you know, they're citizens of other countries even though they've got that colonial connection. So. It's sort of this really interesting period of transition where it's really unclear in the archival records what status people come in with. And I'm not even sure that the French state knows in many instances. So that was part of the story that I was trying to tell, which suggests that status itself can be very fluid when it comes to immigration. I think in this particular moment Mm -hmm. in time, we want people to be documented or undocumented. I don't like the term illegal, but legal or, or not legal. And so this suggests that migration can be a lot more fluid than that, depending on the circumstances at play. And until the 70s with the recession, you know there was an incentive to bring in workers because the French economy was continually expanding and continually running short of workers. And so there were workers coming to France from all over Europe and then also from north africa and also from west africa so this was a part of a broader practice of bringing in foreign workers both who had colonial connections and then who also had european connections so that's also kind of an interesting part of the story
2: i'll just toss out there quickly that i don't like the term illegal immigrant either that was just (laughs) what came to mind as i was trying
1: to struggle through that question (laughs) No, no no do not worry do not worry
0: so So does that mean i'm now on the spot for supporting that term (laughs) <laughs> no. yeah go yeah no i've I to do that so <laughs> but um, no, I'm totally fine but you bring up a really good point about about immigration and you know the experiences of these people socially especially so did you find any um information about the social structures and community structures that these workers set up also maybe more formal structures that being france unionization and how if there was even unionization in some of these jobs and uh, that could actually, if if you see connections there, segue into how the government um, responded to these types of communities and utilized those there for uh, surveillance, or um, if they were even aware of these support structures at all.
1: all right, those are great questions, and that really forms sort of the some of the key overarching themes of the book. So they do bring social structures with them in terms of what the French would call communitarian living. So most immigrants when they come to a new place want to regroup with people from where they're from because it makes life a lot easier you know they can find people who speak their language they can get connected to job opportunities you know they might be able to tap into religious communities and so that's kind of part of the broader story of migration overall and so that's why we have in a city like new york or like you live in san francisco you've got chinatown you've got little italy you've got you know, Germantown, you've got the Irish section of Boston, for example. So um, African immigrants are no exception to that story. And so they do the same thing that immigrants generally do. They find groups that they can tap into. So a lot of times they'll come and they'll they'll go live with their brother or their cousin or their uncle. And, you know, the community sort of continually grows like that. And so they bring with them what the French, like I said, call communitarian. Approaches to living, so they they live in groups. They like to eat in groups. They are Muslim, even though they're not overtly Muslim. They're sort of quiet about their Islamic practices, but they're Muslim. They're black, and so the the French state looks at this and says, "Oh, we seem to see regrouping of black Muslims in Paris and throughout uh, the banlieue or the suburbs, and that's problematic from the French perspective for a lot of different reasons. It's seen as a barrier to integration, for example." So just the way that they're living in France and in cities like Paris is flagged by the French state for surveillance to try to figure out what are they doing, why are they there, are they a threat, are they a danger, are they eroding the social order, are they breaking down French norms and customs and things like that. And what's interesting too is that they do undertake unionization in that they replicate structures that look like unions. Um, The term that's used in French is even union that actually give them a political voice even as immigrants in the 1960s and early 1970s weren't legally allowed to organize you could only form a legal organization declared to the state if you had french citizenship so a lot of times they create these unions with people who had french citizens citizenship even though they're immigrants from West Africa. So they create these unions that had been formed in France by African immigrants in the interwar period and had been formed in West Africa that were used to protest all kinds of colonial policies. And then they work with different French organizations. So the CGT, for example, is a French union that works pretty closely with the African immigrant population. So from that perspective, the French state starts to get nervous because they're like, oh, are these African immigrants also becoming radicalized? Are they becoming leftists? Are they becoming Marxist? Is that a problem to us? So as they start to look more and more politically active, the French state grows increasingly interested in, in what they're doing and what they're thinking. And then those social organizations that they form, the unions and others, also to provide a basis of support for their existence in France. So, one of the key groups I study is the UGTSF, Union Générale de Travailleurs Senegalais en France, or the, uh, the General Union of Senegalese Workers in France. And they actually create a dormitory for West African workers. A lot of these organizations are starting to offer literacy classes. They are doing things that look a lot like what the French state wants them to do from the integration standpoint, except that they're doing it themselves. So they sort of take what the French have to offer and kind of vest it a little bit, or they actually offer services that the French state isn't offering for whatever sort of reason. And this becomes interesting to the state as well, because it starts to say, hey, so these immigrants are creating their own housing structures. Hmm, what does that mean? in terms of us losing control of that, for example. So it's a really interesting situation in terms of how these immigrants are organizing, what they're doing within that organization, and then how the state's responding, and who they're working with, because they are working with all kinds of different groups, particularly on the left side of the political spectrum. And that looks pretty suspicious to the state as well. So it's it's a really fascinating story in a lot of different ways.
2: I don't want to jump too far ahead, but... You're okay. talking about how the French state is starting to wonder if there's something to be worried about with these organizations that are forming among African immigrants. Now, is this just a matter of them just being paranoid? Or based on what you've seen, are these immigrants actually doing things that warrant that attention from the state? Or yeah. um, I guess it's probably a complicated story, but you know, what is that complicated yeah. story?
1: That is a complicated story. You know, the paranoia that that is reflected, I think, is is not warranted from the standpoint of, you know, that these are not immigrants who are agitating for to take down the Fifth Republic. They're not trying to yeah. overthrow the government. They're not plotting against any certain political leaders. They do have very close ties to the embassies in Paris. Um, they do have very close ties to key leaders in West Africa, including Sally Dongo, who is one of the sort of key Political activist at the time. He was very close at times with different Senegalese leaders and the embassy. So, this looks concerning from uh, the state's perspective. But I think that two of the things that explain um, this paranoia is number one, the colonial context. And so, here's where we, we see the overlap with colonial mentalities and how they influence post colonial decision making from the state perspective, in that, you know, the, the French had a longstanding history in AOF or French West Africa of being suspicious of not only West Africans, but anyone who was circulating through the colonies. And a friend of mine, Kathleen Keller, just published a book called Colonial Suspects in which she investigates all the different ways that the French state through the AOF monitored these different populations and and why they did that in the interwar period. So the the history of the paranoia is there and it then continues into the post-war era. And that then intersects with the Cold War. So you know we're at sort of the height of the Cold War at this point, and you know there's a very strong leftist presence in France. France had the first communist party established outside of the Soviet Union, starting in 1920. Had a coalition government of leftist parties in the late 1930s and the Popular Front, and so the tradition of leftist politics is there. And so when African immigrants seem to be going over to that side and seem to be coming, seem to be becoming more active in that area politically, it makes the state very nervous because all of a sudden you have this population of of basically black political activists who are pointing out things like, oh, the housing situation here is really terrible, and we are living in abject poverty, and we experience racism on a daily basis, and this is not the Shangri-La that we were promised when we decided to migrate from West Africa. So authorities start to look around and they say, oh, so we have an anti-apartheid movement going on in South Africa. We have a civil rights movement that's in full swing in the United States. Could something like that happen here? So the third prong of that then is that the paranoia is also shaped by sort of the global emphasis on civil rights and human rights that we see throughout the 1960s and into the 1970s. And officials openly worry that somehow a U.S. civil rights style movement could come to the the French uh, situation or that, you know, that activists will start to agitate or some kind of civil rights movement on par with what's going on in the US. So, all of those different factors converge to kind of explain why it is that the French are looking at this population and growing increasingly concerned. And the other thing that's happening, you know, that's specific to France is that, you know, in the early 1960s, the Algerian War itself is in full swing. And so the relationship between Algerians and the French government, meaning Algerians in France, grows really tense. And so at that point, I think the French government is looking at a lot of different immigrant populations and sort of wondering what they're up to and why. And so the paranoia they have toward Algerians, I think, starts to really shape how they're thinking about other immigrant groups as well, including those from West Africa. Even as they see them as less political, less threatening, that really starts to change over the course of the 1960s, which I think is also an interesting part of the story.
2: One of the topics that I've been interested a lot throughout my history career is is on Vietnam oh, and yeah. so this is a bit outside the scope of your book obviously <laughs> but I'm just okay. wondering if part of this paranoia might come might come from the Vietnam experience because you know Ho Chi Minh was wanted by French officials in Vietnam and then throughout Europe and then uh, eventually the French of course got into that prolonged Indochina War after World War II to try to retake their colonies of Vietnam. So I'm wondering if maybe that might have played into it also?
1: Oh, I absolutely think so. I don't talk specifically about Vietnam or Indochina in the book, but you know, Ho Chi Minh lived in Paris. Pol Pot right. lived in Paris. You know, Leopold Singer lived in Paris. Algeria Everyone lived in Paris at some point. Yeah. So they, all, they were all there um, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, depending on who you're talking about at which point. And they, many of them became radicalized during their time in France. And so I think you take that. Um, and obviously the French state, through surveillance tactics, knows this. And there are all kinds of records now that are freely available that you can look at that, that reveal, you know, what the French was, what the French were doing in terms of monitoring someone like Ho Chi Minh in in France. So you can't discount that. And I think that also points to the broader experience of how colonial uprisings and the process of decolonization itself shapes the outlook of the Fifth Republic, which is the government that's still in power in France today. And that You know, it's founded in 1958 as the Algerian War is really ramping up and as the Fourth Republic buckles under the pressure of trying to figure out what to do with Algeria. And so the Fifth Republic itself is born out of the trauma of decolonization and the process of of letting go of colonies like Indochina and Algeria, both of which, you know, are incredibly violent wars of decolonization with very strong nationalist movements at the heart. And, and two conflicts that essentially became unwinnable for the French, just like Vietnam became unwinnable for the U.S. And so I think that that does fuel not only the way in which the French deal with decolonization in West Africa and trying not to repeat that a third time, but then also how it views immigrants coming from those three regions. So part of the story of contemporary migration to France today is understanding the historical legacy of colonialism and decolonization and how, you know, race and racism and identity and all of those different factors factor into how these groups are received in France today. And I think that you can't discount that in the 1960s and 70s, and certainly you can't discount it even still today. So I, I think it's hugely important. And I think it, it points to that broader issue of how there's an important intersection between colonialism, decolonization, and immigration that hasn't been explored enough, and I I hope that that's one of the things that my book contributes, because too often we talk about either migration in the colonial era or migration after decolonization, but we don't talk about how one influences the other or how there are continuities between the two eras and how they sort of play off of each other.
0: So those are really good actual, like, physical and political connections to what's happening at the time. Yeah. I was wondering if we could also make some um, intellectual connections as well. I mean, the 60s are a <laughs> oh, huge <boy. laughs> time. Yeah, you knew this was coming. So the 60s, we don't you do know, that was it yeah, <laughs> a, a time of major transformations in philosophical thought, right. especially in France. I mean, you have, you're have you coming at the tail end of Camus, you have Deleuze, you have Foucault. To To what extent... Are these events influencing the intellectual changes happening at the time, and to what extent are the the changes happening within philosophy and and the intellectual environment actually impacting the movement itself, uh, the experiences of these immigrants?
1: It's a great question. So, um, you know, I, I think if you look at the work of Franz Fanon and The Wretched of the Earth, you know, that's based on the Algerian case, but he, you know, is looking at the relationship between the colonized and the colonizer, and he's looking at the incredible level of oppression that is brought through colonialism, how it impacts colonized populations, and then how that actually influences how colonized populations respond. And one of the most important arguments he makes in Wretched of the Earth is that violence begets violence, which is not a new concept, obviously, but he brings it into the colonial realm, and he's talking about how colonizers are incredibly violent. And that then means that the colonized respond with um, with arms themselves and with violence themselves. And so I think when you look at what happens with immigration over the 1960s and into the 1970s, kind of that bridge point between, you know, the end of the colonial era and the more contemporary era, so many different philosophers, including Jean-Paul Sartre and Marguerite Dura and Simone de Beauvoir and others are looking at the situation with immigration in france and not just with african populations but with other groups as well they're saying you know are we replicating the kind of oppression that we are denouncing in the colonies meaning are we continuing to exploit these populations who are now living within our borders thereby recreating colonial policies right here in france and so one of the instances that i talk about is this uh, situation where in january of 1975 African immigrants die of asphyxiation in a foyer or a dormitory. Um, they asphyxiate and essentially freeze to death because it's cold, it's not well heated. And this becomes, you know, just this huge sort of moment in terms of understanding what's really going on with African immigrants in France and the exploitive conditions that they're living in. Um, the, the funeral for the five deceased immigrants itself becomes this huge sort of political situation, and you actually have Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir and Marguerite Duras and others who show up. Claude Lanzmann is involved, the filmmaker, and they're you know using their analytical tools in terms of you know Marxist exploitation, um, you know in terms of thinking about exploitation and things like that, and they're saying, hey, you know, I think that this is happening here, and I think that we need to really think about this. And that then intersects with, you know, the broader conversation, as I said, about human rights. So I think that the link is there. I don't know that it's, it's you know, A to B. I don't know that it's, it's linear, but key figures like Sartre and others are aware of the growing desperation of immigrant groups, and they're increasingly talking about them. And I think that you know, it's sort of continuing that existential crisis that um, so many of these intellectuals are thinking about in the post-war era in terms of what is France's place in the world? How do we understand the world after World War II? What is the meaning of life after the Holocaust? You know, how can we understand crimes against humanity committed in the name of France in the colonies, you know, associated with what was, you know referred to as the civilizing mission so how is that working and and then you also have the important issue of race which has always been fraught with tension in terms of any place you go and discussing it but in france there's sort of a, an interesting situation because you know the way that french identity works it's supposed to be colorblind you know coming out of the french revolution anyone who wanted to was supposed to be able to become french but we know that the realities is that are very complicated and So increasingly, there's, you know, a critique by the 1980s, 1990s, and 2000s of saying, hey, I think that we need to rethink the idea of French identity itself, especially in light of the history of immigration that we've got uh, that's not really been acknowledged. And so by the 1990s and 2000s, you've got historians like Gerard Nouriel and others who are saying, hey, we've got this important history of immigration in France, and we haven't actually talked about it or brought it into the historiography and And this includes many groups from around the world, not just European groups. And so intellectually, I think that there's also kind of a reckoning with what it means to be a country of immigration when you have no actual means to talk about being a country of immigration and And the French have struggled just like many other countries have to talk about race at all. And so I think that what happens you know with those key intellectual figures is part of that broader process of figuring out how to talk about race and how to do so in a productive way, and, and certainly that that conversation has not ended. It's, it's ongoing. In fact, I'm reviewing a book right now that's talking about things like white privilege uh, in France and whiteness, and that would be something that would not have been talked about 25 years ago. So, I think that that is still something that's, you know, being explored and being investigated and and it's being done from a variety of perspectives, including intellectually.
0: Thank you. Yeah, um, Fanon is a great example of the Of a lot of the ideas coming out of the colonial experience. So just building on that, I was wondering if you came across any key political or intellectual figures actually coming out of these um, immigrant communities that that go on to affect change within French society or within uh, French intellectual circles. Yeah.
1: I didn't find anyone who's sort of, you know, going to be ending up in the pantheon, although the pantheon itself is kind of an example of dead white French people. <laughs> oh, that's why I'm hoping that we could maybe insert some uh, some non-white yeah. French names into this, right. uh, <laughs> into the um, Exactly, exactly. But the key figure that I focus on in the book and who I'd really like to write a biography of, it could be a next project, I'm not really sure. I, I definitely need a break after this. I don't think I should make any decisions about my next adventures in scholarship until I have a six-month break from all of this. But I would like to perhaps possibly, not committing to anything, maybe write a biography of this man named Sally Ndongo. Ndongo's life sort of fits the mold of a pretty typical immigrant from West Africa. Um, He comes in the late 1950s. He works as a chauffeur. He finds himself in a pretty exploitive situation with the family that he's working with. And then he moves to Paris and he actually becomes pretty well connected to the embassy and he helps to found an organization that eventually becomes the UGTSF, which I mentioned earlier. And he becomes one of the most powerful uh, figures within the West African immigrant community and really within any immigrant community. And he really becomes quite a public figure. He does radio interviews, he does television interviews, he leads rallies, he stages panels and conferences, and he ends up traveling to places like Switzerland, and he's going back and forth to West Africa, and he's connected with all of these different groups. And by the 1970s, he grows sort of much more overtly political. And he writes several books, and he talks about neocolonialism, and he talks about... France's continued neocolonial presence in places like West Africa, using West Africa as a specific case study, and so I think he's someone who really makes a profound intellectual contribution to the discourse about neocolonialism itself, and France's ongoing um, relationship with its colonies, and how those can be rather exploitive. And he also isn't shy about talking about the fact that West Africans in France find themselves rather exploited, you know, and he is picking up on that Marxist interpretation of colonialism itself. And he's picking up on someone like Sartre's discussion of, of neocolonialism and, and that of others as well. I don't know the extent that he really uses someone like Fanon directly, but he would have been, or Camus, but he would have been familiar with them. So he's someone I think he really makes not only an, a contribution in terms of political activism, but he makes a contribution in terms of intellectual production. His books were published by Francois Mespera, which is one of the biggest publishing houses in France still today. And so they were, you know, very well circulated. And he also represents a continuation of that intellectual contribution that the Black African community is making in France and in West Africa, dating back to, you know, the interwar period and even earlier, when you have someone like Leopold Senghor and you've got the Negritude Movement and you've got Pan-African nationalism, you know, not just obviously in France, but all throughout the West African world, in Britain, in the U.S., um, on the European continent. And so I kind of think of him as kind of a post-colonial Pan-Africanist, even though some of my um, colleagues have not really taken they've not really warmed up to that term. I've tried to convince them that I think that's the right way to frame it, but some people aren't such a fan because they think of Pan-Africanism as sort of ending with decolonization in a way. But I really see him as someone who carries that intellectual tradition from the interwar period in terms of Pan-Africanism and Negritude into post-colonial era. And he really is incredibly productive as an activist, yes, but then also as an intellectual. And I think that's one of the most fascinating aspects of his story. I told his story within the context of a chapter on his organization, and so one of the things I didn't get to do as much was delve into his actual writings. I've got a couple of articles that talk more about what he wrote, but I think that's really an opportunity that I'd like to pursue in the future, because I think that there's a lot more that I can say about his discussion of issues like neocolonialism. And there's just such incredible sources that are published that... um, that I'd really like to further develop. But like I said, I don't want to commit to anything because I'm exhausted.
0: (laughs) Well, I think it's too late. You've planted your flag today, and we can all look forward to that biography coming out in a couple (laughs) of
1: years. I expect
2: the book proposal on my desk by
1: Monday. Or 15. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, So does that kind of answer your question in terms of thinking about the intellectual contributions of the community itself? Is that sort of what you were looking for? It does, yeah. um, And actually, uh,
0: it's pronounced Ndongo, correct? Is that correct? Uh-huh, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, uh, he was specifically one of the figures that I was thinking about because he pops up yeah. uh, quite a bit in your writing. So I wanted to see if, there were, if he kind of takes the center stage and becomes a yes. voice of the community or if there are others yeah. that, that yes. join him as well.
1: Yeah, there are definitely others, not that I focused on to the, um, to the same extent. Um, and he's probably the most prominent in terms of, of the publication piece. Um, and what's interesting about the community that I study is that it's mostly workers. There are other important aspects of the broader immigrant community in terms of students and in terms of people from the Caribbean who come. So my colleague Felix Germain, he his book actually talks a lot about the Antulan community in France or the community from Guadeloupe and Martinique. And obviously there's a very strong intellectual tradition coming from those two islands connected to France and the Pan-African movement and the Negritude movement. And so I didn't do a ton with Antillean immigrants. I just was like, I've got to narrow it down a bit. But, you know, Germain's work really does focus a little bit more on that. And, and he's done a lot of really good work looking at that.
0: Well, and how connected were the students and the 1960s student movement to to the immigrant movements, and, uh, you know, we know that how connected they are to the workers' movements, but how involved do they get in terms of the immigrant movement as well?
1: So that's really an interesting question. The apex of the relationship, I think, between the two in terms of students really taking on, students in general, I'll talk about students in general, then I'll talk about African students. Students in general, the, um, the apex of that really comes in 1968 with the May events, where you know, French students and others throughout the country really rebel, and, and throughout Europe too, I mean that's when Prague Spring happens and other things. There's this huge moment of rebellion of what becomes known as the 68ers and the baby boom generation, and so that's when students really start to look around and they're looking at slums of Nanterre, where there's a university, um, and that's actually where the the 68 movement originated, north of Paris. And that's really when I think they start to look around and see the sort of exploitive nature of the French economy when it comes to using immigrant workers. And then one of the sort of undertold stories of 1968 itself is the role of immigrants. And so Daniel Gordon has actually done a lot of work on 1968 and, and inserting immigrants into that story. And that's something that I've always been interested in but never really had a chance to do more work on. So there's kind of a, an important relationship there. And then what's interesting is that African students and African workers are both living in Paris at the same time, but they don't have a ton to do with one another. So that was one of the challenges I had, and, and one of the reasons I ended up focusing more on workers, because there there'd already been a book uh, by Fabia Guimont on student worker organization, or student unions in the 1950s, and so I thought, well, she's kind of got that area lined out. I don't need to go any further. But... There's not a lot of relationship between the two, and I found that to be really interesting. You know, when you look at the archival coverage, there's you know files on students, and there's files on workers, and you don't see a ton of overlap. I think that African students definitely saw the plight of, of African workers and were concerned about it, and certainly African workers knew about the presence of African students, but they didn't really cross paths that much, and I thought that was really interesting.
0: Oh, thank you. Rob, do you have any final questions, or Gillian, do you have any final thoughts, things that we didn't quite get to, or um, a preview of your Ndongo book?
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'll get that proposal to you too. Yeah. Right on Rob's desk
0: tomorrow morning. <laughs> yeah, my exactly. desk.
2: My desk Monday afternoon. So, Gillian, your book covers African immigrants in France during the 1960s and 1970s. Now, today, as as you know, we have probably the largest refugee crisis occurring since World War Two. And so what what can your book teach us about the contemporary dynamics of immigrants and refugees and the policies that states pursue in regards to those uh, immigrants and refugees?
1: I think, uh, gosh, I've been thinking about that a lot. I taught a migration or refugees class last fall, and I will do so again this fall. And and so I've been thinking a lot about refugees. That's another area that I'm thinking my scholarship might go, is looking at refugees and genocide. Those are two areas I teach in, so we'll see. But, you know, one of the things that I realized last fall is that refugees can and have been political actors and activists. You know, the International Rescue Committee, which is one of the biggest refugee advocacy organizations in the world and is working actively in the U.S. and in communities like Missoula, where I live, to resettle refugees, even in the current climate. That organization was founded by Albert Einstein, and Einstein, in part by Einstein, and Einstein himself was a refugee from the Third Reich. And so I think what we see here in my book is that immigrants themselves are really important political actors, and they shape state policy in ways that we haven't looked closely enough at in terms of what they're doing and how the state's responding. Usually we're talking about how states shape immigration, but I think that there's another way to think about it, how immigrants as political actors shape state policy. And so refugees, both historically and from the contemporary perspective, have an incredibly powerful voice and an incredibly powerful story to tell. And, you know, given the right set of circumstances, they themselves can and have become really important forces in terms of political change. And so I think that in confronting that large-scale refugee crisis, the largest since the Second World War, that's an important point to keep in mind because I think that there's an incredible potential for refugee populations all throughout the world to bring their story to light. And they have incredible tools, and they've used incredible tools to do so, from blogs to Twitter to Facebook to memoirs. You know, obviously social media wasn't available in the 1960s or 1970s or the 1920s or 1930s or other sort of key moments of migration and refugees. And and today we have those social media networks and platforms and uh, refugees have been using them and will continue to use them. And then we also see how, you know, states can make decisions that make refugees' lives easier or they can make decisions that make refugees lives much harder and so I think right now we're in the midst of a monumental debate over which direction The world will go and which direction the US will go and and so I think one of the things that my book tries to convey is that states the policies they pursue um, Really do shape the lives of immigrants living within their borders and have profound impacts and Certainly, that's the case with refugees as well and you know to sort of hit on the surveillance piece, I mean, states now have, and organizations as we're seeing with um, the fallout from Facebook right now in terms of um, user data, you know, states and organizations have tools that previous states could have only wished that they'd had at their disposal. And so how they use those and the ends to which they use those, I think says a lot about the organizations and states themselves, their commitment to openness, their commitment to democracy in in terms of states and state actors, and you know, there's the flip side of when they become secretive or when they misuse that data and mishandle it. So I think the book has a lot to say about the contemporary situation and the debates that we're having about immigration and about refugees and about surveillance and about things like social welfare and, you know, who knows what direction we will take, but I think that as historians we have to help people understand that the past is important because it does inform the, the present and it can inform and shape the future in so many different ways. And, you know, anything that we're living through today has been endured or experienced in some way in the past. And so looking to those case studies and looking to those models, I think, can be really instructive to the contemporary situation. And, you know, I think back to the refugee crisis coming out of the Second World War, and I think about the extraordinary measures that states took to try to address that refugee crisis because of the mistakes that were made in the interwar period and and that does give me hope that you know as a global community we can solve this most current refugee crisis if we take the right steps to doing so and if we are committed to it and i think that it also suggests that immigrants and refugees have incredibly have incredible tools at their disposal and have incredible agency in some ways to help shape that present and that future. And so that's, I think, what I hope the book the book suggests, at least on some level.
0: Thank you. I think that's, uh, you know, not only a great way to end, but also a great reminder of the importance of, of history and the lessons that we can draw from, um, from history as well. So, oh,
1: great. Well, thank you.
0: Yeah, well, I, you know, I really do want to thank you for being here today. I think this was a, a great talk, and I'm looking forward to actually reading the entirety of your book, Um, (laughs) you know, having read and reread the chapters that you sent along in the introduction, I was very excited about this conversation. So I'm glad we had a chance to talk about it in more depth.
1: Well, I was too. And I really appreciated the format. So thank you to both of you. I had a lot of fun with this. And I hope that we can do something again together in the future.
0: Me too.